you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. Sozo Church. Um, if you're going to be with us following along, we have a, a slide. We're going to be in First Chronicles chapter 11. So grab your Bibles, flip open, flip them open, or tap on the app. Um, we're going to be in verses 12 to 14 today, and then we're going to jump over to Second Samuel as well. So as we begin, would you guys read with me? Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Let's do the Mark thing. Would you guys stand with me as we read? I'm actually for sitting personally, but. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes when Mark says it, I'm like, <laughs> I guess we'll stand. <laughs> All right. So in this t- context, you, it, the context doesn't really matter. It's kind of like an isolated text. But the reality is King David just got set in as, king, uh, as a king in um, Israel. And for the preceding nine chapters, I'm saying nine because there's nine chapters of like lineage. Where it's like this person begot this person, and he was the son of this guy, and I'm like, oh my goodness. And then you get to chapter 10, and then it kind of comes out of that. And now we get to the place in Chronicles where they're going through the kings, and first um, that it, or second that it mentions is David after Saul. And he starts to mention David, and then he starts to get into the people who were under David. So the people that followed David, and specifically some warriors, some soldiers that he called the mighty men. And so in this text, we pick up. Um, in the middle of this uh, listing of the top three mighty men, and one of them's name is Eleazar, and there's going to be another one in the parallel verse named Shema. And their names aren't really that important, to be honest with you. Like, we're going to talk about that a little bit. But that's where we are. We're, we're with King David. They're, he's listing out the mighty men and why they're called the mighty men of David. And this is where we're at. So would you read along with me? It says this in verse 12. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. I think it's Dodo, the Ahohite. He was with David at Pasdamim when the Philistines were gathered there for battle. There was a plot of ground full of barley, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it, and he killed the Philistines. And the Lord saved them by a great victory. We're going to flip really quick to 2 Samuel 23, 11 to 12. You don't have to do it with us. It's going to be on the Bible above my head. You got to turn it there for me because I don't want to flip in my Bible. Oh, it's there. Now after him, same story, same thing going on. And now after him was Shema, the son of Agi of Hararite. And the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck the Philistines. And the Lord brought about a great victory. The title of today's message, you guys can be seated now. Thanks for standing with me. I won't do that next time, I promise. (laughs) Title of today's message is called, It's Just a Bean Field. Or it's more like a question. It's just a bean field? I put a question mark on it. So would you guys pray with me as we begin? Father, we just thank you. We thank you for this day. God, we're thankful for the fact that it's, uh, we're able to even meet right now. God, with all with the world's going on in the world, Lord, we, we, we're thankful to be a group of people that can meet together um, and to be back together. 
And so, God, we just give you thanks for today. Lord, I pray that, Lord, uh, anything that I want to bring to the table, God, would be shot down. Um, and you would let be spoken only the things that you want the people to hear. And so we just give you thanks. Lord, I thank you, God, that you're present with your people. God, the Bible says where two or three are gathered, you are there in their midst. And so we just give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Is everyone else freezing? Yeah, I was like shivering during worship. It wasn't like the fear of God that was like, but I'm like, <laughs> no offense, Doug. Hey, in other countries, they get baptized in like frozen rivers. I've like read stories about that, right? Like it's illegal, so they got to go out midnight and they get dunked in the frozen lake after cutting a hole. So like, be thankful, right? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not that cold now. Everyone's like, yeah, I'm not that bad. <laughs> it is freezing though. Yeah, I almost ran out to my car and grabbed one. I should have. Okay, so listen, I know that the, it didn't say text. Uh, the, the text didn't say beans. So if you were listening, it said barley in one of them. Any beer lovers in here? Not one. Good, good answer, right? Everyone's like, nope, not me. Okay, well, all right, fine. <laughs> no beer lovers in here? Not even one? Okay, we got like two. Everyone's like, okay. In moderation, of course. So it didn't say, it said in one text, it said barley, barley field. And then it said in the other text, 2 Samuel, it says lentil field. But I swear, when I heard this story, the first time I heard it be spoke, I heard it as bean. So I tried to find the Bible verse, and I couldn't find it, and I didn't want to search it online. So I'm like, whatever, I'm still going to call it a bean field, because that's how I know it, and it sounds better to me. And if you're going to destroy my message for the sake of a legume, <laughs> am I right? Is it a legume, by the way? <laughs> like, they're both legumes. Like, the, lentil's not a bean, but it's a legume. So just go with me. It's just a bean field is what today's title is called. Awesome, it's up behind me. Eliezer, I was like, no, not the beer. Like, that's why he took a stand. <laughs> Nobody's calling that beer thing. All right, so let's go. <laughs> All right, so uh, there's a guy named Gibbons. So Edward Gibbons is a historian, and you guys maybe have heard of him. He died like hundreds of years ago. But he wrote, I think he wrote the first completed uh, uh, chronicle of, of the Roman Empire, like from start to finish, you know, at least all that, you know, we would say is in there. And, and Edward Gibbon compiled this thing, and it's called The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And you have no idea where I'm going with this yet, but you'll see. And in that, he gives some reasons why he believed the Roman Empire actually fell. And there's a lot of arguments about why and what's the main reasons. And some historians, I think, have compiled lists of up to like 200 plus reasons why the Roman Empire fell because it's an empire. And there's a lot to it. But he tries to give his best reasons. I think he gave about five of them. I'm going to list four. And so Gibbon, in this, he lists them. And it's not necessarily in order, but here they are. Number one, Gibbon gave this. He said that the prevalence of divorce and a moral decline in his society. You might be like, well, divorce, that's kind of weird, right? Well, he was talking about the, the moral decline that happens with a rampant amount of divorce. That if you look at a society, if you dwindle down what a society and what a community actually foundationally is, and what it gets built on top of is it's, it's families. It's family unions. And we know that in our society, right? Like you raise up families. And because you raise up families and kids, they become part of the bigger community. And so when you mess up the foundation on which you raise kids, society gets jacked up. You guys get what I mean? And so he said that number one was the prevalence of divorce in the Roman Empire, along with some other barbarians coming in and things like that, led to a moral decline in the Roman Empire. So that number one shattered right we even see the Colosseum being built just because people wanted to see like bloodlust right and, and and they they actually saw that it appeased the people and it would like revolt stopped happening when they like 
made guys kill themselves. So they're like, let's keep doing this. And the state funded this Coliseum. So number one is this. He gives prevalence of divorce. Number two, he said that the Roman Empire fell largely because of a heavy taxation and economic difficulty. That men stopped being able to, to work for a livable wage. And because of that, and they were heavily taxed, and because of that, they couldn't afford food. They couldn't afford to take care of their families. And I'm just adding those ones in. You don't necessarily have to know that today. But the third one in that we do have to know for this text is number three. One of the main reasons he gives for why the Roman Empire fell is because of internal strife. It was an internal problem that Rome had, right? The, the West and the East were split up now, and, and there were civil wars happening within them. And there was, you know, they, didn't figure, they couldn't even figure out who's going to be empire, uh, emperor next. And, and internal strife he put above. He actually lists them out. This is an in order. But he lists them out in order. And the fourth thing he put, even, even, even before this, right, he put internal strife before this last one, which was external wars. So if you look at Rome, it was sacked numerous times throughout its history, right? And you would say, just looking on, like, well, it fell because an army came in and, like, conquered Rome, the city of Rome, right? And you would be wrong, and Gibbons would call you wrong, that it actually fell primarily first because of internal strife. I'm going somewhere with this, I think. I might. I hope. <laughs> Another quote that we have by Will and Ariel Durant. They, they were a famous couple that compiled. It's called The History of Civilization. It's like a 25, it's like 11-part history of uh, the, the history of civilization. And they said this, a great civilization is not conquered from without until it was conquered, it, until it has been destroyed from within first. And you've heard some sediments like that before, right? Like, like, you know, you don't get externally beat until you're internally beat. And they thought the same thing, that maybe that's an exaggeration, but there's still something there that's true, right? That sometimes we fall not necessarily because of external forces pushing against us, but because internally we corrupt first, we break first. And the Bible precedingly echoes this sentiment in Luke Chapter 11, verse 17, where Jesus says this, but he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided house falls. Jesus is echoing the same sentiment, that if you're divided against yourself, a household that's divided cannot stand. A city, an empire divided against itself will fall. And I believe this, I think we as Christians, and even non-Christians, I think we as humans are often a kingdom divided against ourselves, and at times we don't even realize it. If you're honest with yourself, like how many times have you probably done yourself more harm in certain situations than good, even though you didn't even really mean to, right? Like we don't mean to shoot ourselves in the foot, but at times we do shoot ourselves in the foot. I do that a lot. Ask my wife. <laughs> I'm not even going to start. I almost said some, yeah. I, I don't say this to my wife, but I was going to be like, no, you look, you, yeah, never mind. <laughs> like when your wife's like, how do I look in this? And you're like, oh, you know, like, I, I think she looks great all the time. But you know that husband that puts his foot in his mouth? How does your butt look in this? Huge. <laughs> like, but like, man, never, <laughs> I should have stopped. <laughs> I meant it in a good way. <laughs> So at times we're a kingdom divided against ourselves, and we don't even know it. And what I mean by this 
is when we give free ground, when we give free ground, usually by letting wrong desires win that are either externally forced, they can be externally pushed upon us, or the Bible also says that sin is bred from our own desires that stem up within us, right? So it's either external forces or internal forces. We give free ground to those things by giving in when we shouldn't. We retreat. Let me put that slide up. Just like the people in this text, it says that in the second Samuel text, it says that all the men were gathered, Israel, against the Philistines. And then it says that Israel fled back, right? They retreated from their own grounds, the plot of land, the bean field, or the barley field, and the Philistines pushed in, but two men stood their ground. And I think often we're more like the Israel, the many, where we flee when we should stand, where we give ground when we should have pushed back, even if that odds don't make sense. We retreat. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It says to tear down every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of Christ. Right? We think the little things don't matter. We think the little thoughts, ah, little thoughts here and there. It says every thought. Every thought we're supposed to take to the obedience of Christ. Tear down everything raised up against the knowledge of Christ. And I'm preaching against myself here. I get it. Like, I don't do that. And I think we see in this text that, man, we're supposed to stand for the little so that we don't give up the much. So often we say, ah, it's just a plot of land. It's just a bean field. It's just a small thing. Let's retreat to the city. We can, we can regroup there. But who knows that after we do that time and time again, we don't just give up a little ground. A little turns into a lot. And then a lot turns into, man, our backs are pushed against the wall. When we do this, I think the Bible is clear. We're supposed to wage war in the little so we can keep to the much. It's just a bean field, they probably told Eleazar and Shema. It's just a bean field. Let's pull back. And when we do this, Mark spoke last week about a thing called double-mindedness. Put up that slide. You guys remember that? Bible talks about being double-minded. It's when you it's when you have this and you, but you have that too. And and I'm not talking about just like preferences, like likes, right? Like I think you can like Snickers and like Kit Kats as well, because all of them are go okay. I think you can like beef jerky and turkey and all that, right? But it's talking about things where where they're exact parallel opposites, like contradictory things, where you'll say like, man, what my wife said is right, but she's wrong. You know, it's the things where we'll say this. And that, and specifically when we're double-minded, the way the Bible presents it, is we're double-minded against God, right? Like if anyone asks God for anything, let him ask in faith, and God will do it. But if you doubt you're a double-minded man, you can't really have faith. You can, And we'll talk about there's a certain kind of knowledge where we can have an opinion about something. Where like you can say, like, logically, I think that's true, but your heart doesn't actually believe it. And we see this time and time again in the Bible. There are people who are double-minded that they say this, but then they retreat from it and say, well, maybe it's this. And we're called as Christians, yeah, I'm not talking about preferences, but I'm saying as Christians, we're, we're called to stand on what God says. And in this context, they were battling against Philistines, against their, they're their fighting for their own land that was given to them, not by man, but specifically by God himself. And two men remember the promises. And this is still the introduction, so we'll get there. But we're double-minded when we do this. 
See, we all have a bean field. This is what I believe. There's two things, A and B. Number one, A. Number one. A, every single person in this room has a bean field. We all do. Whether you know it or not, we all have a bean field. And this specifically is ground that has been given by God for us to keep. That's what I mean by bean field. Something that has been given to you that is good to have, is good to keep. And specifically in this context, though, it's ground that's under siege as well. Sometimes we have to protect our own land. And this is what I believe. It could be, what do you say? It could be in our marriage, right? Your morals, kids, rights, promises of God that we should have as Christians. Who knows this? Did you know that there are like numerous, numerous promises of God that are yours if you would just claim them? The Bible says that we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That we have all the fullness, right, inside of us, the Holy Spirit living with us. And yet, it's like we, like, have 2%. It's like we have activated 2% of those promises. And usually, it's from self-doubt, right? We don't believe the promises that God has given us. And we're going to talk about that as we go on. But it's those things, right? It's, it's promises. It's morals. It's, it's those times, those specific things that God has given you. Those words that he's spoken to you specifically. That you're afraid to grasp. That you're like the Israelites at are fleeing from their plot of land when you're rightfully supposed to stand on what God has given you. So A, everyone has a bean field. And, and B, put that up. It is worth defending. It is worth defending. And hey, it's your choice. You can go on continuing to retreat back and retreat back. And sometimes we do this thing where we'll like have victory, but then we don't really have full victory and we do this teeter-totter thing. Right, where it's like years of this, when I believe that truly God wants to bring real freedom, genuine freedom, and he wants you to be able to stand on his promises. I mean, stand on what he said that he did. But it's up to us. Sometimes we don't believe. We might say it, right? It's that head knowledge. Oh, of course it's worth defending. It's what God said. But we don't actually believe that because we don't actually do it. those times where we say, I can't really be free from that. I'll never have peace in my marriage. It's always going to be disaster. Where you're fe fearful, where you have failures, that's usually these places that we're supposed to defend. So again, everyone has a bean field, and it is worth defending. So here's our context as we dig into the text. By the way, it can be external too. Right? Sometimes we have these eternal things where it, we're, susceptible, we're susceptible to sin, right? By, by omitting things and by commission, right? Omit, omission of certain things is when we don't say the things we should do. Maybe it's tax season and you don't claim the things that you should have claimed. Didn't do the thing you were supposed to do. Or it's committing sin, right? Where we do something that we should not have done. But also, I see this very truly in my own life. There's actually a very real enemy who absolutely hates us as Christians. He wants you, he prefers you bound up in bondage. I'm talking about the devil. And that is a very real external factor that is pushing against you. So I'm not saying that you, at times, yes, we are our own enemy. But I'm also saying that there's a very real devil who absolutely hates your guts. And he will be the external force on you as well. He wants you to believe the lie that you're not really free. That you really can't have that. That you should feel bad. That you should, you are a failure. Right? When God says in Christ that you are absolutely not those things. 
So I want to be clear as we move on. So here's our context. There's our context as we're moving forward. And so my question for you today, the main thing I want to ask you is where is your bean field? Right? It can change as life goes on, and we have many bean fields, but where specifically is your bean field? That you feel like, man, this is mine to claim, that this is something that I should be, maybe it's a freedom that you haven't experienced yet, right, in your Christian walk, because at times we feel like we're always doing this teeter-totter thing where we'll sin and then, ah, oh, you know, and we're trying to get freedom from maybe a certain thing. It could be that, or maybe it's an area that God has made you a promise, but you're not willing to stand on that promise. But where is your bean field in your life right now? What's funny is I was studying the, the trying to figure out, what, one, who the heck is Eleazar? Who's Shema? Right? Who, who, where is this place called uh, Ephes Damim, which is in the Second Samuels 1? It, it's the same place as Pas Damim. So I was trying to figure out what the heck are these places, like what do they mean, and, and what's the significance behind them? You want to know something that when you like study, sometimes there's people in the Bible that are mentioned like once or twice, and there's not much of a significant, now no, I'm not saying they weren't significant, and I'm not saying that like they're not loved by God, but to us there's really no significance. Like Eleazar is mentioned like two or three times in the Bible, and it's always just in passing, like in this text here. Like he did some mighty thing, and then that was kind of it, and you never hear about Eleazar again. There's like 20 other dudes with the same name. They're all mentioned like once. This Pastamim is only mentioned twice in the Bible, this place where he defended the plot of land, three times with the other name, Ephistamim. And honestly, it, it's insignificant if we're talking about like Bible places. It's not Jerusalem. It's not Galilee. It's not places that are like, wow, the only significance that I found was, was years before, there's a guy named David who fought a guy named Goliath at this place, and that's very significant, right? We, we talk about this David and Goliath thing, and we tell it like, like our kids are like, yeah, like we're going to have giants, and we got to defeat the giant like David. But Mark has said this many times, right, that, that the reason why it's significant is because it represents the gospel, that we're the scared Israelites, that David is Jesus, and that Goliath is our sin and the devil that he defeats, sin and death. So that is significant, but this is years later, and they're still battling the Philistines on this line, Right? They're still battling them, and there's not really a big significance to this land. Even after that, it's never, as far as I, I saw, it's never mentioned again. But I, I'm pretty sure that's the point, right? I'm pretty sure that that is the reason, right? We, little things that we don't even think that are important are actually important. Those little places where I don't really see much significance in that is actually a pretty significant area. Because, again, as we give up the little, we make ground for them to take the much. And so this place, Eleazar, Shema, they're only mentioned a few times throughout the Bible. They're David's mighty men. I mean, that's what they are. They're, they're good men in the kingdom. And they, def they, they defended this little place. It's tiny, too, between two cities. That was really just a plot of land. Like, I was like, maybe there's someone who was buried there. Or, like, you know, like something like, wouldn't it be cool if Jesus was, like, did something there? And, like, you know, and there's just nothing. It's like, it's like oh, man, what if, what if, what if? And then, like, nothing. I'm like, okay, but I think that's the point, right? Like, at times, we have to defend. We have to fight off the little things that don't matter, that, that seemingly don't matter. But who knows that they are significant? So where is your bean field? Where is your bean field? So I'm going to give you five things that I see about this bean field from the text. I'm going to give you four now and one later. These are things that we have to know for our bean field as well, that I see this in the text 
in both those, 1 Chronicles 11 and 2 Samuel. But we need to know this moving forward for our own sake so that we can stand our ground like Shema and like Eliezer. And number one is this, it won't be popular. I want you to know that as Christians, there's a lot of things that are not popular and that, but that we accept. It's not popular that we believe that there's a dead man that rose from the dead. A dead man? He was dead, now he's alive. But we still believe these things. And number one thing that I see from this text is it was not popular to stand your ground on this lentil field. And yet Eleazar still did it. It wasn't popular because everyone else fled, but there were two men who stood their ground. And in this life, there will be things that are not popular. Your bean field, the thing that you need to stand on, the things that you need to push back against will not be popular, but you absolutely should still do it. Others will flee, even godly people. I'm sure there were great men in that group of Israelites that, hey, let's go fall back to the castle or wherever they were. There's no castle in Pastamen. Let's go fall back to the village. That's how insignificant. There was no even, there was like no, there was nothing. It wasn't even like a stronghold there. It may be just you standing by yourself out in that field, but it's absolutely worth it. The second thing is it's usually at a heightened state of chaos, right? At this time when Eleazar, that they, they rolled up against the Philistines, and that's what the only significance, the only ongoing thing that we can find in this area is that it was an ongoing place of battle with the Philistines, people who hated Israel. So they continually had battles with Israel here. That's why David you know, killed Goliath years past, and that's why they're there in this place still now. They're on this border between this area where the Philistines came through, and they battled with them. So it's usually every time you will have a place, a bean field in your own life, it's usually going to be at a time of a heightened state. And what we like to say is it's just not a good time. That's what I mean by heightened state of chaos. It doesn't mean you're actually fighting a war, but it's usually not a good time. Just like in our Christian walk at times, it's, it's never the good time like this. The good Samaritan. You ever, anyone know that story? Where Jesus is like, hey, there is this man who's a Samaritan, which is like the people that the Jews hated. He's on his way to go do some business, and he sees this man who is basically bleeding to death because he got beat up. And all these other people passed by. They just passed by him because they were probably too busy. It's not like they probably just hated the guy, but it's usually because of busyness, right? You've ever been there where someone asks something from you, and you're like, oh, I would. Usually I would, but I'm really busy right now. Right? You ever feel that conviction where I'm like, you see someone like their car break down and you're like right behind them and you're like, I should probably stop, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna work. It's never a good time, right? There will never be this, the, those, that perfect circumstance where you're like, wow, I got everything done and now I'm ready to take on this next thing, right? No, it's usually at a time when there's chaos. It's not a good time. It wasn't the good time to defend against the Philistines and yet Shema and Eleazar still did it. You guys get what I mean? So wherever your bean field is, hey, the time to defend it is probably not going to be, there's never going to be the, uh, the absolute perfect time to do it. But you still pick up arms and you stand your ground. The third thing we see which ties along with that is that not just is it chaotic, but there's almost certainly going to be opposition and conflict. There can be a difference between chaos, being busy, right, not the right time, and conflict and opposition. But a lot of the times, there's going to be opposition where you stand. You, hey, any topic you can think of, people are fighting about it, right? Is that sin? Is that not sin? Even in the church, everyone's fighting about everything. 
So you better believe that wherever your bean field is currently, whatever promise or whatever moral thing or your kids or your marriage or whatever it may be, you better believe there's going to be opposition, sometimes in your own families. Believe it or not, my wife doesn't agree with me about everything. She's insane. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just said that loud. <laughs> right? Even in your own family. Sometimes one person will tell you one thing and, no, it's okay to do that. No, she did that to you. You totally divorce her. Give up on her. Ah, give up on your scumbag husband. Right? He's selfish. There's always going to be conflict. But we're still called to stand our ground. The fourth thing before we go on is this, before I give you the fifth later. It's always, 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 always worth it. It's always worth it. If you stand your ground when you know God has given you that something. Sometimes we stand our ground on stupid things. I'm not saying, like, die on that hill about those stupid things, right? Like, my pastor said he doesn't only read the KJV. I'm dying on the hill, right? Like, there's certain things that, like, hey, is it worth it to die on this hill here and now for that? And usually it's those things that are not worth it are because they stem from ourselves, right? I'm not talking about things that stem from us, like our own personal little convictions. I'm talking about the places God has said, this is right, this is wrong. This is yours. I've given it to you. Your marriage, your kids, right, wrong, adultery is not okay. White lies turn into bigger lies, right? That little fight turns into a greater fight. You shouldn't have said that to your neighbor. Why are you being so mean? Why did you flip off that guy in traffic? Right? One thing spirals after the other, and I'm telling you, if God is the one that said it, if he's written in his word, if he's spoken it to you, it is always going to be worth it. I'm not talking about the KJV thing, right? This, that, the other thing. There's certain things that, hey, personal, right? It's like subjective. But objectivity comes from God, right? We have the subjective things, right? Our personal beliefs about things. But who knows that God is not subjective? The things God has said are objective and true. Math is true whether you like it or not. I don't like it because I never understood it. But when God calls you to something, when he calls you to stand your ground in your being field, it will always, 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 always be worth it. So where is your being field? It's just a being field, they said. It's just a bean field. It would have been easy for Eleazar and Shema to believe that, huh? But here's the point. It was their bean field. God had given, if you know the story about, of the Bible, right? God long passed, thousands of years before David. Thousands of years? Yeah. Thousands of years before David had declared that they were going to get the land, the promised land. The land of the Amorites. They were going to get this land, and, and every single Jew believed it, right? They can, well, maybe not all of them, but he believed it, and his kids believed it. And yeah, there was some murmuring in Egypt in the wilderness, but eventually they get to this place where God himself leads them to the promised land, and they get it. And then, hey, he doesn't just let it, give it to them for free. They kind of had to work for it, but they knew it was from God. And now you fast forward, right? King David, 1000 BC somewhere. He's now in charge. They are still in the land that was given to them. That was given them to by God himself. And now what are they supposed to do? Just give up the land that God had given them? That's the point, right? 
It was their land given by God, and if they just continued to fall back, two people believed it, the rest didn't. Yeah, well, I mean, it's our land, but we'll get it later. Like, yeah, 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 hey, Shema, LA's our fallback. We'll come back later when we're all, yeah, that'll be better. But two people believed it, and they stood their ground. It's your bean field. And so God's going to let you do with it that what you please, right? He gives you that choice. We can walk in freedom. We can walk in the promises of God where he actually said you can be free. For freedom's sake, I've set you free. You are no longer a slave to sin. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Who here lives in that? I don't live in that. Who here sometimes feels condemned? Like one person raised their hand. <laughs> Who here feels like sometimes they're a slave to sin? Just me, okay. It's our bean field, and it's our choice whether we actually walk in that. Are we being double-minded? So past the mem. So this is what I did find about the land, right? I said there was some significance with David de- uh, defeating Goliath here. And these are the two places, Pastamim was how it was worded um, in First Chronicles, and then Ephesdamim was how it was worded in Second Samuel. But it's the same place, same story, and one of the words means palm of blood. And so here's the significant, here's something significant that I found about it. Palm of blood or border of blood, right? So we have two places, Pastamim, Ephesdamim means the same place. But all it was talking about, the reason why it was called this, palm of blood or, or border of blood, was because, like I said before, it was the place where Israel continually met the Philistines in battle. Whether, I don't exactly know where the Philistines came from exactly, because it was still in the land of Israel, which they came to this place. But they would come through the land of Israel, and this was the place that they continually met in battle. They continually met in battle. And this is the significance that I found in this, is that meeting, this helped me figure it out, because at times, who knows that it's not always easy to see where our battlefield is. The Bible actually says that you can sear your conscience as with a hot iron. Right? We stop believing things to be true, right? Moral truths that have always that have always been true to us start to get foggy. Well, maybe it's not that bad, right? Maybe it's more when the world is telling you that this is right and that's not true and this is okay and that's not okay, sometimes it gets easy to start believing a lie. Sometimes it gets easy to stop being, I'm very idealistic. I'm not saying to be exactly like me, where everything's not everything's black and white with me, but there's a lot of things that are black and white with me, right? I'm not saying to be that. But I like that, man, sometimes there's solid ground that you can stand on and say, hey, that's not okay or that is okay. And I'm not just talking about moralism. We're going to talk about that too. I'm not talking about you just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. But I'm talking about there are things that are actually right and wrong. So pastamen, ephestamen, at times it's hard for us to see because our irons are seared, because people lie to us, because sometimes conflict is so overwhelming, so overwhelming. It's not necessarily that you've sinned, but you've started to believe the lie that maybe God didn't give me this ground. Maybe that's not mine to claim. Man, there's so many people against me that, man, maybe this job isn't worth it. Maybe my wife's not worth it. Maybe my kids, so I don't fight with their mom, maybe that's not even worth it. Here's a way we can know where our bean field is. From these two things here, palm of blood and border of blood. I think this, they were named after this. You can go to the next slide. I think it was a continual place where they found conflict. That's why it was named this. 
And so sometimes you can know where your bean field is. It isn't because it's so clear, like, oh, yeah, it's that sin that I struggle with, or it's that promise that I'm not walking in. Sometimes it's hard for us to know. Who's ever walked in a sin or, or a disbelief for a very, very long time, and then God showed it to you, and you're like, oh, yeah, my bad, right? That happens. We see that time and time in the Bible. I look at myself. I see that time and 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 time again. I think that you can find your bean field because it'll be a place, a continual place, where you find conflict internally or even externally. I'm not saying that's always right. Sometimes you're just a dummy and like you find internal and, and external conflict because you are messing, you are sabotaging. And that's your being field. Like stop sabotaging yourself. But at times, it will be the place where you continually find conflict. And you're called to take your stand in that being field. You might not know it. It might not be the place where you're like, yeah, it's that sin I'm struggling with. But this is a way we can find where our bean field is. And at times it's even harder, right? You can go to that next slide. But how do we know? There's times where like you really don't even know. Some of you are like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't even know what you mean by bean field. It's not always that easy to know. It's not always the place where it, it, a continual conflict is. It's not always that moral place because you're like, I don't think I'm falling or stumbling anywhere. You can't ask your wife because you're not married because she'll tell you. My wife and I are not fighting, by the way. Like, I'm, not, I'm like throwing fire. She's awesome. I won in that marriage proposal. Let's say that. I got no problem. She might. And uh, uh, this is a good way, right? Jonathan Edwards lived a long time ago, died, part of like the first great revival in the United States. He had this idea, you put that slide up, he had an idea of notional or opinion knowledge versus sense knowledge. And that sounds really wordy, it's not. It's, it's like secondhand knowledge of something and firsthand knowledge of something. So what I mean is like, you can believe something, like I said before, you, you can believe something about God, like raise your hand, and I want everyone to join me because I'm losing people. Raise your hand if you think God is good. Amen. Raise your hand, keep your hand up if you think God loves you. Keep your hand up if you know that God always loves you. And I don't mean no, I mean like when you, how about this? If you feel like God always loves you. Good for you guys. But there's half of us wind our hands down, right? My whole point is this, that there are certain truths about God that we know, but we don't really know. And this is what Jonathan Edwards is talking about here. He tells it notional or opinion knowledge that, that you can know something to be true, but if you don't know it in your heart, if you don't sense this for yourself, it's, you don't really know it. And he explains this idea of like someone who says that they have peace, like God gives them peace. So raise your hand if you think God gives you peace. Everyone again, amen. He does, in fact, give us peace. Raise your hand if you always have peace. Oh, finally, everyone's hands went down. Praise God. <laughs> no one has peace in here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, 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 that's not what I meant. But you're proving my point, which is good. So my, <laughs> Jonathan Edwards for you. So notional knowledge says this. You'd, Jonathan Edwards would say this. Then you don't actually believe that God can bring you peace. Like, he didn't really have a, he, he would say, I know you think that, but you don't actually believe that right? And I'm using a hard thing. I don't think he did this, but I'm doing this. He would say, that's great. So now that you just told me that you believe God gives you peace, but you don't continually walk in that peace, he would say, then you don't actually believe that God gives you peace. Because if you did, you would have that, 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 that confidence that he does, and you would walk in peace. And I'm not saying it's easy to always do that. That's what he would say, and I'm starting to believe it more and more, that there is such a difference between that head knowledge and that heart sense knowledge. I'll give you an example. Who likes honey in here? 
Raise your hand again. Come on, I'm a youth pastor. Boom. What's wrong with you people? Just sugar. <laughs> yeah, raise your hand. I want to see this. Raise your hand if you've never actually had sugar. I did it with my youth the other night. Raise your hand if you've never had, had, had honey. Raise your hand if you've never had honey. There was like one kid in our youth group that had me. Okay, perfect. So you would understand this. You've all had honey, so you know what honey tastes like, right? Yes. Oh, it's great. You put it on PB&J, put a little banana on it, so good, right? So we all know the sense of honey. He would say we know the sense knowledge of honey because we've had honey. We know what it tastes like. Now, could someone maybe have an idea about honey if they've never had it? Not like, not the same way we do, but could they get an idea? Maybe they've had sugar, they've had stevia, they've had agave, they've had things like honey maple syrup. Would you say that they could have a kind of an idea if you explain it to them? Like, yeah, it's kind of sweet, but it's not, and it's, it's sweeter than stevia. You know, could you think that they should maybe get an idea of what honey tastes like? Okay, would you, would they be able to, that, I'm sorry, would that be able to sustain their love for honey? No way. I love honey because I've had honey. If you just tell me about this sweet thing that, oh, it's really good, you got to try it. You never get it until you have it. You know what I mean? It's kind of like kids. People can, I kept, I remember people telling me about their kids like, oh, like you're never going to get it until you have kids. I'm like, I can understand it. Yeah, you like love them, right? And then you have kids and you're like, oh. <laughs> right? I remember, I'm a little, I'm not like, an emo, I'm an emotional person, but I don't cry all that often. Sometimes I do. We're, I was watching the Patriot the other night. We cried. <laughs> Mel Gibson caught me. I tell you what, I was crying. This scene with her dad and the little girl, and she's like, dada, dada. And I'm like, <laughs> crying like a baby. My wife's looking over at me. I'm like, mm-hmm. she's crying, but I'm pretending I'm not. Oh, I was bawling. Oh, gosh, so good. So I'm going somewhere with this. Oh, kids, yeah. I remember having our kid, and it was like instant. Zoe, our firstborn. It was like instant love that I've never experienced, ever. It was an instant connection that I love this kid more than anything I'd ever experienced. Yeah, Jesus is my Lord, but I just felt a natural love that I've never felt. And then it happened again and again. And it's like, I thought it wouldn't happen with the next film. I'm like, I just can't. There's no way. And then boom, I'm like, oh. I'm like crying when they come out. And then I remember times I'm standing in the kitchen and I'm just crying because I'm like, I love this child so much. We, you don't get it unless you have kids. You just don't. And I started to think back of all those stupid statements I went where someone's telling me about their kid and their problem, and I'm like, oh, you probably feel bad. Like, you just don't get it. Like, yeah, of course I get I can get that. I can sympathize with that. But you can't empathize with it until you actually have that sense knowledge. The point is this. There is a head knowledge, and there is a firsthand experience knowledge. And Jonathan Edwards knew that difference. And he knew that if you didn't have that sense knowledge, you couldn't be sustained in that thing. You won't stand your ground for whatever it is, that bean field, unless you have an experiential knowledge of Jesus in that thing. You can, you can hold to moral truths. That's wrong. I'm never going to do that. I guarantee you will. Unless you have that sense knowledge of Jesus in that place. So the way we do that, so that's the way, right? Sometimes we don't always know what's obvious. Sometimes we don't always know. Once we get renewed by Jesus in our Christian walk, which happens time and time again, it's mysterious. I can't, give you a, I can't give you a formula to follow, right? Do this and you'll experience Jesus. I can't. Read your Bible. I tell students that. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Continually read your Bible and pray and walk this life out. Sometimes it'll be tough. Sometimes it'll be easy. But I guarantee you, you look better if you're a Christian later than before, right? Sometimes you go like this, but I guarantee I look more pretty today than I did seven years ago. 
than I did eight years ago when I first started, started to follow Christ. I'm prettier now. Right? Like, he's not, oh, God, he must look bad before. <laughs> yes, I did. But you will experience Jesus in this. Sense knowledge versus notional knowledge. He also worded it like this. You put it on that next slide. We need a renewing in our sense knowledge. We need a renewing in our sense knowledge. The Bible says that Paul, talking about external things happening to him, he said outwardly we're decaying, we're falling apart, but internally, inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. The Bible says to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Repent and return so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. There's this thing in this Christian walk where outwardly we could be falling apart. Outwardly the Philistines can be pushing against us in our bean field, but inwardly we're being renewed. And so if you don't know where your bean field is or you know where it's at, but you don't care that much about that bean field, you're just like, ah, it doesn't really matter to me. I've been there. Like where I'm like, I used to care about this thing, but I don't. I used to care about the lost. I used to care about the lost more. And I'm starting to get that back again. But there was a time where I just kind of lost it, where I'm like, forget them. I wore Jesus on my shirt. Like, I, this isn't because I was preaching. I wear this shirt just around. Like, I used to care about the lost a whole lot. I'd be the weird guy, like, oh, Jesus, like, what's up with that weirdo? I'm like, yeah, I love God. Like, how about you, you know? And then I kind of lost that for a while. I got busy. I had kids. Life started wearing on me. But then God renewed my sense of, like, how important it is to reach those who are unreached. That we have a message that no other person, no other religion, nothing else can, can, can do the same thing that this gospel of ours can do. It can renew. And I'm starting to get that back again. I'm starting to love the lost again and care about their eternal salvation. Because I've been renewed in the sense knowledge. I've been renewed in that. And so whether you have your bean field, you know where it's at or you don't know, I know that spending time with Jesus in our sense knowledge, renewing that, will show you where your bean field is. It'll show you where he's calling you to be or it'll renew your encouragement to stand and fight in your bean field that you know exists. Go to that next slide. And you might be like, well, how do we do this? We need to see Christ's excellence. This is what, the other one was mine, actually. This one is Jonathan Edwards. We need to see Christ's excellence. You know the reason why you continue to fall in that thing that you continue to fall in? It's because, again, this goes back to like, oh, no, I wouldn't say that, but you would say that. It's because you think that thing is more excellent than Christ. I know you wouldn't say that. There's tons of times I fall, and I'm like, I know you're Lord. I know you're this. And, and I know you wouldn't say that that thing that you continually struggle with or that place that you won't gain. Like, I know God told me in a word I was going to have that, but I, I can't. It's because you think your fear is more excellent than the one who gave you that gift. Because you think your fear or your sin, that thing you're struggling with, is more excellent than Christ. And I know you don't believe that, but you believe that. What Jonathan Edwards says, your sense knowledge would tell me that you don't actually believe that. Just like he said, if you say, God, man, he brings peace. Well, why aren't you walking in peace? You don't actually believe that. Yes, I do. No, you don't. That was not a joke. <laughs> We need to see Christ more excellent than anything. And the more time we spend in Christ with, with Christian community, right, because that's at times where we meet together and he's there. I'm not saying yeah, at times I'm just worn out. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to go to prayer. I don't want to go to a small group or a belong group or whatever it's called. I'm telling you, the more you give yourself over to this thing, the more you give yourself over to Christ, you see his beauty. You see how much better he is than anything. 
I'm not perfect, but I'm telling you what, at times I see Christ's beauty, and it's better than everything. And I promise you, as you spend pushing times, pushing in, pushing into Christ, he is more beautiful than anything. Jonathan Edwards had this other sense of, you ever heard of a nominal Christian? It's a Christian that's more, you know, they do Christianity just more for like, you know, community or, or external things rather than for the real thing itself, right? And we would say a nominal Christian is someone who's not really a Christian. Maybe they grew up in a Christian home or, yeah, they would say Jesus is like the Lord. I got time in my life, I would say, yeah, Jesus is it. But I re- was not a Christian. But I knew he would be the one that I would go to if I was going to pick something, right? So a nominal Christian someone who's not really walking with Jesus. And this is Jonathan Edwards. I, I, Jonathan Edwards, I'm sorry, I keep quoting him. But this was just really good stuff. I was reading as well. But he, he's spot on on some of these things. He said a nominal Christian to him would be someone who, who follows Christ because of what they can get out of the relationship. Now, sometimes that's joy. Sometimes that's peace, community. Those are all good things. But they spend time with Jesus because they get something from it. A real Christian is someone who spends time with Jesus for who he is. Because he is excellent. Right? And yeah, I need a savior. And yeah, I want peace. And yeah, I know Jesus is the answer to those things. But primarily before anything else, I follow Jesus because he's worthy. Because he's excellent. Because at a time in my life, I saw him to be beautiful and good. And he answered that. And there's no doubt that he is those things. And so you today, if you don't know where your bean field is, if you do but you don't care about it anymore, if your marriage is falling apart and you don't care about that other person, if, if man, hey, I'm selfish. Husbands, we're selfish. We got to make our wives our best friends. Wives, fight your husband's battles. But ultimately, even doing those things aren't going to make our marriage good. But spending time with Jesus, seeing his excellence, will in fact do that. I promise you. I promise you, I'm a lot nicer to other people when I spend time with Jesus. When I see how good he is and I spend time with the risen king, my marriage will be better. It doesn't mean it's to be perfect, but it's better. Your job will suck at times, but spending time with Jesus will renew things in you. You care about the people there. Maybe I, this is my battlefield. My boss was being a jerk, I was going to quit, but you were renewed in that sense. Now I'm going to stand and fight. I love these people. I love these people. Maybe it's in this Christian community right now. I hate the people here. You need to spend time with Jesus. And I say that, and you're like, that's such a fluff answer. It's not. I can't tell you how to do it. Man, but reading your Bible and praying and getting with Christian community seems to be some kind of formula. It's not perfect, but the more you do that, and you don't just look out for yourself, I want to see Jesus. I want to understand the mystery of the gospel, Christ in me, the hope of glory. I... It does something in us. We need to see Christ's excellence.